Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Caroline Crampton, the New Statesman's web editor, standing in for your regular podcast host, Helen Lewis. On this week's episode, Sophie McBain talks to Mona Siddiqui about her feature in this week's magazine on the challenge to Islam. George Eaton and Raphael Baer discuss Labour's new housing policy and a rather explosive interview with Ken Livingstone we've got in this week's magazine. And Ian Steadman tells the bizarre tale of the video game rediscovered in the New Mexico desert. I'm here with George Eaton and Raphael Baer to talk over the week's politics and we're going to start with uh, big news from Labour who have announced some new policies about housing. George, tell us what it's about. Yes, so the three flanks of this policy which is aimed at what Ed Miliband called in his speech at their campaign launch, Generation Rent, are to extend standard tenancies from six months to three years. Uh, to cap rent rises um, based on a particular benchmark such as inflation or the average market rent in that area and to scrap uh, letting agent fees so in the future the cost will be paid by landlords and labor estimate that will save the average household uh, 350 pounds and uh, labor sources very keen to emphasize that in their view this is not rent controls they're describing it as predictable rents um, but I think, sort of semantics aside, it's uh, it's, it's a, a popular and and equally importantly a, a credible policy. And I think this is uh, this is one of Miliband's most astute interventions since he became leader. I'm I'm, I'm inclined to to agree with that. Actually, I do think. I mean, it's it's revealing that the the conservative reaction, the immediate conservative reaction, was to say you know, rent controls. This is the politics of Venezuela. It's always a bit of a tell when the Tories sort of reach for the sort of bucket of hard left, aren't you just a bunch of rabid socialist sort of abuse? Because it suggests that uh, they don't quite know how they can't sort of quite feel their way around this issue, but viscerally they sense it's all a bit lefty. Um, it, people who have who look at housing policy and have, and have obsessed for a long time about uh, you know, this as, a, as an apt pivotal issue uh, have for a long time been saying 
look, it's all great that ideally people would own their own homes. Everyone wants to be a homeowner. That's part of the sort of the British dream, as it were. The mm. reality is, for a lot of people, they've lost hope of if you can't scrape together a deposit, if you don't have parental wealth behind you, you can't. You're not going to buy a house. The reality is renting. This isn't something that any isn't limited to people in their early twenties starting out in the professional careers. It's families, and as is often the case in other European countries. Uh, where you can have security of tenure, the, the people want to feel that their rented home is their home. It's not some; they're not sort of transient, and they need security of tenure, and they don't want to be subjected to sudden rate um, rent hikes. And so, from that point of view, it's a it's a good generational pitch, but not at young people, at anyone under the age of forty who isn't really really rich. It's very possible they're renting. It's a smart move. That's very interesting because I know we were talking a few weeks ago about uh, you know Osborne's pitch to pensioners and everything he was trying to do to get the, the sort of grey vote out for the Tories. What's this going to do for Labour in terms of the ballot box? Well, it will certainly, as I say, people particularly. You know, maybe under 35, certainly under 30. I think there are a lot of people who will look at the government's language on uh, whose side they're on, which is essentially people who've got a spare 10, 20 grand to put away in an ISA or who are thinking about retirement. So you're not just simply, mm. this government isn't talking to me. Uh, and Labour suddenly is, um, or at least more so than it was before. The, the reservation, obviously, is that a lot of people who really suffer, especially lower down in the market, from you know, real this sort of cowboy... Um, landlords, the, you know, what's been described as sort of the wild west end of the rental sector, do lead relatively transient lives. They don't necessarily register to vote. They don't necessarily vote. And sort of, um, students, uh, people in social housing, for example, and it's interesting to see how this will interact with that. Um, so it might be sort of firing up the base, but not necessarily mobilising a whole bunch of new people. But again, it just shows that when Edmund Aban chooses to he can say he can start a conversation that means people are talking about politics on his terms and it justifies his decision, his insistence on not dancing to other people's mm. tunes. Um, and the, the problem is the gaps in the long periods in between when he's thinking about the policy where they aren't saying anything at all. But for you, today is one of those days where they are saying something and people are talking about it and it's working. And George, the timing of this announcement, it's starting to feel like we're at the beginning of a long election campaign is that how you see it yeah this is going to be the longest election campaign ever principally because <laughs> we, we all style. know yeah. the date of the general election so this is the <laughs> it first pretty ever. long already to be honest you know this, we haven't even started yeah. so the first ever fixed term we've had and mm. so i mean I've, I've had people from all sides say that they really think you know it's everyone is in is is in campaign mode now and parties increasingly will be focused on on, on, on sort of selling selling their policies to the electorate rather than uh, sort of uh, the, um, on day-to-day It's worth day-to-day adding management. quickly that, I mean, this is technically the beginning of, a, of an election campaign because this policy is being announced, you know, as part of the launch of Labour's campaign for the European elections right, in May. Yeah. But the interesting thing is talking to someone close to Ed earlier in the week, um, they are very deliberately using this campaign as a rehearsal of the themes that they want to find the general That's election campaign. They're not going to say... Mm-hmm. Okay, well, it's a European election, so let's talk about Europe. They don't want to be dragged into a conversation about European referendums. They're saying, you know, our MEPs will fight for jobs and growth and cost of living issues in Europe, just as we will in the UK. This is a dry run. Mm. That's very interesting. Now, on a different topic, George, in the magazine this week, you've interviewed Ken Livingstone, uh, last seen trying and failing to beat Boris to become mayor of London again. And he had some fairly choice epithets about our mayor. He did. Um, So he called him uh, a fairly lazy tosser um, (laughs) who just wants to be there. And the interesting point that he was making is he told me that the biggest mistake he made about Boris was 
assuming that he had a grand plan to tilt London to the right rather mm. than just someone who craved the power and status that come with the position. So his advice to Labour, which he predicts will win the general election and will face Boris as leader, leader of the opposition, mm. is not to make the same mistake um, and to attack him on, on those sort of lazy, in those lazy terms rather than as a sort of hardline Thatcherite. Because it's a, it's a very seductive conspiracy theory that gets trotted out a lot, isn't it? This whole idea, oh, there's a by-election, Boris is going to run, Boris is going to succeed Cameron, Boris is going to be Prime Minister. What do you... Yeah, I, um, it is quite... It, I have felt for a long time that part of the, the reason Boris is, has that, that allure around him for a lot of Conservatives, um, obviously, he, you know, he, he's won Labour votes in London, he's won an election, you know, he's, he's more attractive than a lot of the other people who might be leader of the Conservative Party. But there's also an extent to which I think the Tory-leaning press and a lot of Tory... Well, it's obviously Tory MPs, but even, you know, the sort of outer tier of Conservative support, they don't like Cameron, they don't feel he's one of them, they don't particularly want to support him. They're not Labour. Mm. Uh, UKIP are a bit out there, so they need a sort of a vessel for expressing the fact that they don't really want to be cheerleading for Cameron. And Boris, is, is sort of, he, he serves that purpose very effectively. You can sort of write, if you're, if you're the Telegraph or the Mail or the Times, you can essentially hurt Cameron by writing, by talking up Boris without having to consider whether or not you might even actually like Ed Miliband, which they don't. Now that's very interesting. So he's a kind of the acceptable face of He's opposition. a proxy for non-Cameron that is neither Ed Miliband nor UKIP. And this idea that, um, that he's lazy, that he's not working hard enough, is this I, kind of stuff going to stick? I think he works very, very hard, but he works very, very hard at thinking about what is the best thing for Boris and his career. Right, so it's all about brand Boris and yeah. his commas rather than the job he's actually doing. Yeah, and I think that there will be... I mean, George, you, I don't know, you, know you, you probably have looked at this more closely more recently, but there will be a credible charge, I think, by the end of his term as London mayor. It's like, well, once you got the Olympics out of the way, what did you do apart from stick your feet up? Well, you personally, yeah. George, I know you I were mean, very hard. I'm talking about <laughs> Ken, I, Ken did make the point that you know, quite, quite reasonably that Boris inherited a lot of the projects from him, the mm. bike scheme, the Olympics, obviously, Crossrail, and that other than, as he put it, the cable car to nowhere, there hasn't been much movement on anything else. And, and this stuff, for instance, this stuff we've just been talking about housing, I mean, Boris has done nothing about the yeah, housing crisis in London. There was this great anecdote that Ken told me, actually, which was just before the Olympics, he got a call from Boris and Boris said, look, I want you to be my personal guest at the opening ceremony because it would be very bad if you weren't there. And he <laughs> said, well, thank you for that. And look, I, I just want to take the chance to say we've got this big housing crisis mm -hmm. and you really need to start building homes for rents. Mm -hmm. And he said the shock in his voice was as if I just asked if I could sleep with his wife. <laughs> he said, they just don't get it. You know, these Tories, they reach a certain age, they're given a house or they inherit mm -hmm. one um, and they just don't get it. And actually that obviously ties in with the, uh, with the Miliband policy today on rents. And it's certainly something that I know Ken has been pushing for. I mean, he's, he's a still, big fan of Miliband, isn't he? He is. Yeah. And a quietly influential figure. So he spent quite a lot of time with Miliband in the uh, early years of his leadership. Um, when he was obviously the, the oh. party's candidate for and Matt Ed's, um Ed Miliband's sort of union liaison guy formerly is from Kate old Ken Staffer, so there is an institutional personal connection there. And one, I do think that I hadn't really thought before this moment actually about what what an interesting argument that is that Boris has not. He's not, he hasn't shifted the centre ground of politics in London. He just won Labour votes by being Boris. Mm. And if I were a, a, a Tory 
looking at Boris now, I, I would that's that takes his price down a little bit. Actually, you think, well, it's all very well winning Labour votes by just being quite good on telly and not it not being a very important job. But if you're not if you're not changing the discourse of politics so that liberal metropolitan London starts to feel it can more generally vote Tory. Actually, the the luster fades a little bit. And it comes back to what you were saying before, that has he actually done anything for the Conservative Party or has he just done something for Boris Johnson? Yeah, good point. Well, read the full interview in the magazine. Thanks very much, Raph and George. So this is Sophie McBain, I'm a staff writer at New Statesman, and I'm going to be speaking to Mona Siddiqui, who is the Professor of Islamic and Interreligious Studies at the University of Edinburgh, about her piece, which is in this um, issue of New Statesman, called The Arabization of Islam. Um, So Mona, thank you so much for coming on to speak to us about this. Um, I thought I'd first pick up on the idea of the Arabization of Islam and just wondered what what exactly you meant by that. Well, I think what I'm seeing over the last 20, 25 years is um, a gradual narrowing of what Islam should sound like, should feel like, should look like. And it's almost as if it's been taken back to a kind of 7th, 8th century vision and version of Islam, which is slightly odd in our kind of modern context. And for me, the problem with that is that um, uh, we've lost, to some extent, the physical, the intellectual diversity of Islam in that. So even in Europe and in the West, you see more and more Muslims who are dressing in the same way, irrespective of their original national backgrounds or original heritage. They're, they're speaking in a certain way, they're emphasizing certain things. And all of these things are actually stripping away the the kind of diversity of Islam and all pointing to uh, only one kind of way of being Muslim. Um, And it's not just in the um, wearing of headscarves and garbs, it's in a diversity of issues. So, of course, Islam was born in the Arab world, but I think this kind of Arabization that we're seeing is actually um, taking away this this kind of richness of Islam. Uh, Yeah, and what do you think has contributed to this? narrowing of 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 islam part of it is this kind of defensive attitude i think that somehow i suppose when a religion in some ways is feeling less confident about its place in the world um there's a narrowing of discourse um there's a kind of um we need to get back to something that is more about how we are as muslims rather than we can be Muslim and have multiple kinds of identities. And and I think that's to the detriment of Islam's uh, cultural and religious heritage. So, and a lot of it is the political identities of Islam, that uh, Islam should only look one way now. And this looking at one way is very much against the Western world. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
world. So you may be Muslim and Western, but you don't have to look Muslim and Western. And if anything, that will make you less Muslim. And that kind of debate that I find people having in public life is, I think, quite... Um, it's becoming increasingly visible in Islamic um, societies, but I think it's actually a huge shame because that's not the way Islam came to Europe. Yeah, and you talk your pieces in a way a, a call for, for ordinary Muslims to engage much more in this debate. Um, and I wondered if that was actually placing quite a lot of responsibility on on Muslims. We don't, we don't for instance, um, ask us Christians to to enter the debate when someone attacks an abortion clinic in the in the US. I mean, is it a lot to ask for ordinary Muslims who who don't take this kind of very militant interpretation of Islam to to stick their neck out and say actually, you know, we 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 speak out against this? Well, there's there's various layers to this. I mean, the first issue is that everybody always compares, oh, we don't ask Catholics to do this or Protestants to do this or Jews to do this. And I agree on a kind of intellectual level, that's true. But at this moment in time, everything to do with Islam, whether it's faith schools, whether it's hijab, whether it's militant aggression in other parts of the Islamic world, all of it collapses into the Muslim faith. So most people don't actually make any distinctions between ordinary Muslims and what's happening in the name of Islam. And as I say in my piece, notwithstanding the millions of Muslims who are quite happy to be Western and Muslim as well, who don't feel that they have to be part of this, I think it's really a luxury that we can't afford at this moment. Because in 10 years' time, things might change, things might be very different, and people will not associate Islam with violence. But at this moment in time, everything to do with Islam, at least at reported in the media, is um, in some way linked to something that's hostile about Islam, something that doesn't fit in with the values of the West. So for me, it's not necessarily a level playing field. We as a minority at this moment in time, as I say, it may change, at this moment in time, need to be more engaged. Simply, if, if for nothing else, to let ordinary people know that there is a cultural Islam, there is a religious Islam, and there is a militant Islam. And unless people can differentiate between the three, then I think we're fighting a really badly losing battle here. Yeah, yeah, and you, you, um, you mention as well that lots of people have slightly misconstrued this battle, that they see it as a battle of Islam versus the West, but you describe it as a battle for the for the soul of Islam. What exactly do you mean by that? Because I think that many of the discussions <clears throat> are seen as, oh, these are about Islam and the West, as if these are polar um, differences um, and binary opposites. And they're not. The real issue is, are Muslims themselves having finding safe spaces to have these kind of controversial discussions about public faith, private faith, um, how the certain ways of being Muslim fit into where Europe itself is going or the West itself is going. And I'm not saying that there is one answer, but I don't find the, that we're having those conversations even or the conversations that people do want to have that are controversial are being shut down. And so many people don't feel that they can have open conversations about a lot of things. They may have them in the privacy of their own home, but they can't have them in public life. And unless we bring out some of these conversations in public life, then what we'll find is that all that the Muslim world seems to do is react to some media story. 
And that really takes us nowhere. We just go around in circles with that. Mm, yeah, and you, you mentioned in the in the piece you um you talk about this reluctance to to um, challenge or question Islamic beliefs within Muslim countries. But it, I mean, is it the same in in the UK? Is there a fear of of labeling certain beliefs as not Islamic or not necessarily the only interpretation of Islam? Um, and that's what, exactly what I mean by the narrowing of Islam that that there is a certain um, rhetoric now in many parts of the Muslim world that is very much about whatever you're doing is just not Islamic and that modernity itself is collapsed within an anti-Islamic attitude. And that's what I feel is not only disingenuous but really harmful because so many Muslims are in the West and so many Muslims who are not living in the West are also Western in their attitude. And by Western, I don't necessarily mean geographically Western or ideologically Western. I just mean that the sense that they believe in, that the freedoms that they enjoy, they believe in intellectual freedoms, they believe in social freedoms, they believe that they can, they should be able to live their lives according to their vision of Islam without having people telling them constantly that you're not a true Muslim if you do this. And I just think that that's not how it was always, but how have we become like this, um, especially diaspora communities? Um, who have become entrenched in certain ways of thinking about Islam. So, yes, I do think that the conversations really need to be had within Muslim communities. Yeah, and just one final question, because you finish off the piece with a really interesting idea about the um, looking at the really kind of radical, violent fringe of Islam and suggest that perhaps the appeal of terrorism lies in in the the boredom, the boredom and the um, of of a liberal a liberal democracy, um, and I just wondered if you could explain that a little bit more. Yeah, um, I, I don't have the answers to. I don't think any of us do at the moment um, as to why there is such an appeal um, for a more radical Islam for some people. I mean, to me, it doesn't matter whether it's just one person or a thousand people. What one person does that is violent in the name of Islam affects us all. And I do think that in certain ways, there is not much to struggle for in the West for a lot of people. Society is very orderly, society is very good, um, things are achievable. And I think a lot of people may find that the human soul, the human spirit needs some kind of struggle. Now, there's ways of channeling that struggle, there's ways of channeling that restlessness, I don't think that it's been channeled in the right way for a lot of minority communities. Um, so this is just me really asking a question out there. Is is this something that we, we need to be thinking about? Is this more of a philosophical question than simply about when Muslims are going to go off and fight in uh, war, war conflict zones um, in the name of a more just Islam? I don't know, but it's a question I would like to pose to people. Can we think about this um, at a deeper level? Yeah. Well. Um. Yeah. I mean. Thank you very much. That is a, um, a big, a yeah, a big question for um for people to to grapple with. So um, thank you so much for uh, speaking to us and um, for your piece. Our 
science writer Ian Stedman is now going to tell us about a very bizarre story where some very old video games were found in a desert. Yes, I am. Go on, Ian, what's yes, this all about? This is about the great video game crash of 1983, which um, many of you listening may not have even been alive at that time, but sit down by the fire and let me tell you a story. <laughs> we view ER or whatever. Um, in 1983, well, 1982, E.T. came out, which was this big film you might have heard of. Uh, <laughs> Steven Spielberg directed it. It was a massive hit. And back then, the video game industry in North America was the biggest in the world. And you had all kinds of like weird console companies that you don't hear about anymore. Like Mattel had their own console called the Intellivision. There's like the Coleco Gemini and um, <laughs> the Emerson Arcadia and all these other strange things that completely died off. And the reason they died off is because of E.T. Um, Atari was the kind of Microsoft or Sony of the day. Uh, they had this console called, called the, console called the 2600, which was pretty bloody good for the time and easy comes out in 1982 and they want to make the video game of the game so they negotiate with uh steven spielberg's production company and i think it's 20th century fox might check that i'm sorry <laughs> um yeah uh anyway they they managed to eventually after many months they negotiate the rights for like 35 million dollars which is a huge amount for the time um and they get the rights to make et the game but they want it to come out by christmas 1982 and they negotiate the rights in july 1982 they get this experienced programmer called howard scott warshaw in who's done a few other games for the atari did quite well um and they tell him he's got five weeks to make this game and he does the best he can but it's notoriously one of the worst games of all time you you play et there are five screens that like you can move between them and there are pits in on them you fall into the pits until you find a pit that has a piece of a telephone that you can use to call home. Mm. But the entire game is you're just walking out and falling into pits and slowly hovering out because, of course, E.T. can hover um, and falls into pits. So it's that's extremely a, boring. Oh, it's just so boring and tedious. There are all these kind of videos of people online trying to, like, put themselves to be playing this game, which if you actually you know, manage to make it to the end, lasts about 10 minutes in total. Um, Atari spent loads of money on this, like 120-something million dollars. And they uh, produced something like 3 million cartridges, most of which went unsold. And the rest of them, because of such bad reviews and because people who bought the game thought it was so terrible, returned them, ended up just costing Atari a huge amount of money. They had to slash their earnings forecast for 1983, which created a stock market sell-off and a panic in the video games industry. <laughs> and the entire North American video games industry just went kaput, basically. All because of this terrible yeah, game. Yeah, all because of this. Well, it was a lot of factors, like the flooding of the market and stuff, but it was the kind of the, the catalyst, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, if you will. Um, of, <laughs> of the, the 80s video of the, game market. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it wasn't until the late 80s when Nintendo start, uh, released its first, the Famicom or the NES in North America, that you got a video game market again and what we see today. Um, but E.T., they buried it. In... So the rumour went. The rumour went that Atari had all these unsold consoles, uh, unsold cartridges, uh, so many millions of them, that they buried them in a landfill site in the New Mexico desert by a town called Alamogado. Um, and it was something of a... Uh, a myth or a legend within the video game industry for many years because Atari was kind of sold off, broken up. It now exists pretty much just as a brand that's owned by other publish another publishing company that just like slaps it on games, mm. but it's not really Atari as it was. And no one from that time, like there's no documents to prove it or anything. So there's all this kind of like, is it really? Are there really a million or two million or three million ET cartridges buried in the New Mexico desert? And we can reveal now that there are. 
Someone went and looked for them. Yes, um, a documentary maker called Zach Penn is making a documentary about this, and funnily enough, commissioned by Microsoft's new like Xbox Entertainment division. So there's a nice little irony there mm. that like one of the modern console manufacturers is literally di- digging up the industry's past. Um, he's got a crew and they went to this landfill and they dug it up and they found all the cartridges and they had this like little festival of et where <laughs> they had this huge crowd came together and like the mayor of the town came out and everything um and they had a bunch of old atari consoles so people could play all the games that they found in the landfill and f- not for very long because it's a terrible game but um yeah they found it so this like long-standing sort of urban legend has been confirmed true confirmed true which almost never happens almost never happens yes. yeah and so is there a kind of hipster retro aspect to this? Are they going to now start selling the ET game? God no. I mean, I it's, bet. It's I, well, I bet. Bad. I bet you will be able to buy them, but um, it, it's really a form of sadism to, or masochism to to play that game. So it's so yeah. Awful. Don't 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 play that game. No. But still, it's it's a nice little story. <laughs> it's a nice all. little story and a kind of cautionary tale of what happens if you make. A very bad game too quickly yes yes they thought that the uh the, the the brand title of et would be enough to save it from just being shoddy which even happens today but luckily never to the same degree you've been listening to the new statesman podcast you can find us on newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on itunes our theme music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons we'll be back next week Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.